10. 2 Samuel, if you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. Mixed Feelings is the title for this evening's analysis. Now, 2 Samuel continues the story from 1 Samuel. The two books originally published as, as one book, a single volume, a single work. The Dead Sea Scrolls, when uh, they were discovered, 1 Samuel was in one book, a single book. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were found around 200 years before, or put together 200 years before Christ, not found. <laughs> uh, the events in this book, 2 Samuel, are about a thousand years, just a little bit over a thousand years before the coming of Christ. Now, Samuel, of course, does not appear in this book himself, having died in the first Samuel. And uh, yet the book still carries his name, since he was the last of the judges and Israel's first kingmaker. And a fitting appointment for Samuel, being such a godly man, such a man of prayer and a man of action. And God chose him to lead the transition from the judges to the time of the kings. Now, Jewish tradition says that Samuel wrote 1 Samuel chapter 1 through 24. As we know, they didn't have chapters when the books were written and the letters and into the New Testament. Those were later given. And uh, Samuel, of course, did not have to even write the book for it to carry his name. He's such a figure, such a character, a righteous man, that even if someone else wrote the book and said Samuel gets the name because he kicks off this new age, this new era in Israel's history, and the anointing of God is all over it. Uh, but I do believe he did very much was because there are things that he at least told someone else, but I believe he wrote much of it because of the content. There are things that only he could have written and have a personal touch that uh, go along with it. And uh, if you read a book long enough, you begin to appreciate things that you otherwise would have missed had you just read it once. And so there's great value in rereading material. The problem is, after a while, you can become so familiar that you miss things because your, your brain is drifting, you're so familiar. And that uh, is a discipline. It takes a discipline to overcome that. Uh, after the death of Samuel, of course, in the first book, in the 25th chapter, we, we, the story just continues without him. And some notes have been added by others, uh, no question, uh, even into the days of uh, the monarchy of, of, of Solomon, all the way up to Hezekiah, 700 years before the coming of Christ, there were little, just little things. And for example, in First uh, in Samuel chapter 27, uh, therefore Ziklag, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Well, somebody made that distinction between the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. That would have, that's a sort of a time stamp to say that little note was put in after the kingdom split. Like 95% sure that would have been put in after. And no less anointed for that. It doesn't mean that, well, if Samuel didn't write it, it's not anointed. No, that, that's not how it works. It's the, the truth is what gives it life and the source of that truth, the revelation coming 
from God. Also, there's uh, no mention of the northern kingdom, Samaria, which means it, uh, probably early in, in, in the split of the kingdom or maybe Hezekiah's age, as, as I mentioned. Um, the majority of it, though, done by, the day, by Solomon's time. Now, 1 Samuel, as we just completed, focuses on Israel's last judge, Samuel, and the first king, Saul, and David as a rising figure. Now, if you didn't have 2 Samuel and you, you were just reading 1 Samuel, you, you certainly would know that, well, David's going to be somebody in Israel. And you start reading it, you're liking this guy. Samuel's dead. You're not liking Saul. And so it, it's an easy fit. Of course, 2 Samuel concentrates on David and his reign and his relationship with God and his relationship with men. Where would we be without 2 Samuel knowing, hearing about the things David did? Knowing how godly he is without having his failures, if he was just held up like Daniel, you know, this man that is spotless, uh, it would have been such a loss. But to be able to read the life of David, to know how God embraced this man, even after his crimes, God does not abandon him. How much power and strength is in that for any believer? In fact, David, who is Israel's greatest king among men, Sorry that I have to add that. It should be a given. I shouldn't have to say, well, I'm talking about men because someone might come, well, Jesus is the great... Of course Jesus is the great king. There's no contest there. So I won't be doing that much more. Uh, anyway, the uh, second Samuel. David is Israel's greatest king, and it comes out that way. God establishes a covenant with David after his uh, failure, promising him a throne that will last forever. Actually, he does it before the failure, but it continues after, even when David commits a horrendous sin, plural, I should say, horrendous sins, the covenant still stands. God does not abandon David. He does not abandon the sinner. The sinner may abandon God, but God does not abandon the sinner. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He doesn't say, I will never leave you so long as you behave. That's legalism. That is one form of legalism. That means you're earning the relationship with Christ. And we can't do that. He's too good. He'll never be able to earn uh, a relationship. We receive the relationship out of his goodness. And based on that, imparted to us is his spirit that begins the, the recreation of man in God's image, the likeness of Christ on us. And so throughout First and Second Samuel... What we see is Yahweh's faithfulness in the midst of unfaithfulness, and it is pronounced and it is profound. In other words, it is very clear and it is very powerful. Paul continues, the New Testament, of course, picks this up and just puts it on steroids, uh, the thief on the cross. I mean, what did he earn? Nothing. And yet, Jesus said, today you will be with me. Nobody's ever going to take that from him. But Paul writes to Timothy, he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. It's who he is. God understands what sin has done to us more than we would ever understand. And yet he has made it clear in his word that he's not going anywhere and it is not in our best interest that we 
go away from him. Now, to understand and to appreciate the man David, all you got to do is read the Psalms. You read the Psalms, especially Psalm 119, and you begin to see how this man thinks about God and about life and about sin. And you're moved by it, and you say, well, Psalm 119 doesn't have his name written on it. And, well, who else's name could go on it? Just David. Nobody writes like Maybe somebody was a one-hit wonder, and they just happened to stumble across. No, I don't think so. It is this man, no matter what we find in David, he is God's man to his death. Into the new kingdom, the millennial reign. For a thousand years, David's name is held up, not Abraham. Abraham will be there. He'll be no less Abraham, the great man of God. It's not a contest, but there's a point here. God holds this man up unlike anyone else in Scripture. Why? Because he had a heart after God. And so do we, and so can we. It's not little stuff. Ezekiel 37, verse 25 Ezekiel prophesying about what's going to happen when the Messiah is ruling on earth, the world, from Jerusalem. David appears to be ruling Jerusalem, Christ ruling the world, Jerusalem under that authority too. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your father has dwelt. Now pause there. Just that God is calling Jacob his servant, when we know Jacob was oftentimes a knucklehead, yet God does not call him that. He left that for me. So again, the grace of God is so big. Otherwise, Satan wins. Because we just can't come up to the standard of holiness that we know we should come up to. Ezekiel continues, he says... Where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there. This is Israel, the current land of Israel, geographically speaking. They, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Now some, some don't see this as David. They see this as a veiled reference to Messiah being David. I don't agree with that. I, I can't say, well, they're totally wrong. I did. What were they thinking? I don't, I'm not that much against that approach, but I, I do not agree with it. I believe that it means David himself. It remains an extraordinary honor, even if it's not David. It's an extraordinary honor to have your name associated with Messiah ruling for a thousand years. Imagine if he said to my servant, Rick. <laughs> it's like, whoa, I'm going, you can see, well, that ain't happening. So, <laughs> For David to be singled out from all the Old Testament figures, to have his name associated with ruling Jerusalem for a thousand years, uh, is quite, it's unprecedented in Scripture. It is quite remarkable directly applied to Messiah. When he says forever, the Bible forever does not always mean eternally. You can say, I'm going to love vanilla ice cream forever. Well, when you get to heaven, there's going to be better stuff. I mean, as much as I, I love trees, I think most trees are, you know, are, are quite impressive and beautiful, but they're nothing. They're wees compared to what we're going to see at the tree of life in heaven. And the point is, of course, you have to keep it in context. Uh, some things do mean forever, without end. 
in some things when the word forever is used in scripture it means for the duration of that period because there's a new heavens and there's a new earth going to come and Jerusalem and the rest of this planet is going to be gone and and who knows what God has in store it's going to be amazing Uh, uh, therefore uh, this again still is an extraordinary position to be in now the history of this second book runs about 40 years. So we're going from chapter 1 to, to the last chapter. I think it's chapter 28. Uh, we get 40 years of history. Now, part 1, the first 10 chapters, are the triumphs of David. He's going to get through this, you know, experience here in chapter 1. And then he's going to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he's going, God's going to say, go to Hebron. And he goes to Hebron and he steps, becomes king there. Uh, but uh, he's going to triumph. Uh, But the problems start later when David is at home and his men are at war. And as king, he doesn't have that luxury. There There are luxuries that go away as you move up with the Lord, as you mature in Christ, even if it's in your position. I had many luxuries before I became a pastor as a Christian, and they're gone. <laughs> they have to look at other things and really think this through. People are listening to what you're saying. They're counting on your advice, and you just can't give them a, you know, yeah, I think so. Go for it. <laughs> and it's a disaster. You have to, it's, it's much more, uh, the, the, the game has to, you step up the game. God does this, and he certainly keeps his servants dependent upon him. Uh, Paul had it pretty easy in, pretty easy in uh, Tarsus. It's when he was pulled back to Antioch by Barnabas that Paul had to step everything up too. And it's just for all of us, it's this way. The second part, from chapter 11 through 24, the transgressions and therefore the troubles. That's what we'll get. Yet, yet, as the book closes, picks up in 1 Kings, the first couple of chapters, there David's still standing. Key verse, if I had to choose a key verse, and I did. <laughs> I mean, you could pick a different one. Same for 1 Samuel. But one that stands out to me is found in the 24th chapter. Which is the last chapter. I think it was said 28, 27. Anyway. Here it is, 2 Samuel 24, 24. Well, before I give it to you, David has committed yet another sin with, because of pride. He gets ahead of God. God holds this to him. And uh, there's a plague that comes. People are dying because of David. And uh, to atone for this sin, David is instructed to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And he buys the threshing floor of Aruna. And uh, Aruna says, I'll give it to you. you You're the king and this is for God. You can have it. David says, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to Yahweh my God with that which costs me nothing. Is that not profound? I'm not giving God my junk. I'm, whatever I give to God is going to be something that costs me something. Uh, someone asked me about uh, this Sunday, take up your cross and follow me. How was that received by the people back then? Because the cross of Christ was at that point uh, non-existent. It was to come. It just hadn't happened. So they did not view the cross as we view the cross. And my answer essentially was, it is the element of duty and sacrifice in our faith. 
that was present all the way back at the beginning. And even present in the Garden of Eden before sin. The duty of Adam and Eve was to sacrifice an urge to take from that tree. Which they did not do. Of course, they took from the tree. So to this day, belonging to our faith is the sense of duty and sacrifice. And this is what David is expressing. It's kind of cheesy when someone says, I don't think, I'm, I'm not, we don't, shouldn't tithe. You're crazy then. Give me that. Don't sit down on that chair. You didn't pay for that. <laughs> it's just silly doctrines that creep in because I think people are up to something. Anyway, now the third cycle begins. We're discussing the prophets and the kings and the heroes of the faith. We could add the priest to that. This Samuel, he was a priest, not a high priest. He was a priest, but the age, he was the prophet for sure. And the, the era of uh, Samuel is closed. The uh, first king, Saul, the era of Saul is gone. And now the hero, prophet king, who is not a priest, David, who, who will typify the prophet, priest, king of Christ, who is the only one that fulfills all three offices, David will sort of give us a type of that when he dons the ephod, the vest, not the, the, the pouch, and he dances before the ark. And there you have the king, the prophet, and the image of the priest all rolled into one, uh, dancing before the entrance of God, into the, or the visible entrance of God into the kingdom. And so uh, Christ, of course, only fulfills that. Now we finish the introduction... We begin with the first verse. And I, I had a good time preparing this because I, I like solving, I like making it fit where it's, it's, that doesn't make sense. I, I'm uncomfortable with that. I, I think hope most of us are. I hope nobody says that. It doesn't make sense, and I kind of like it. Uh, we, like, we've got to crack this uh, puzzle here. I, I mean, I'm not into Rubik's Cubes or anything. I would shoot one. I would gladly shoot a Rubik's Cube, but I can't solve it except by... Okay, never mind. I guess you go, um, you know. Anyway, we have one brother who's moved away, but his family's still here. He can solve a Rubik's Cube while he's driving. That's quite impressive. I could shoot one while I'm driving. So, there. Anyway, verse 1. Now, it came to pass. <laughs> I'm just sorry. After I, next time I go shooting, I'm taking a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> no, I'm not. Next, now, it came to pass after the death of Saul, that David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. Well, it's been about a week since David left the Philistine muster, when the Philistine troops mustered together to move into Israel's territory to fight this big war with Saul and his forces. It's been about a week since they dismissed David. Say, you can't come with us. You might, might trade on us. And so he, of course, goes home, finds out that the Amalekites had uh, plundered and pillaged his, his home, Ziklag, his home, and taken off the, with the goodies and the people. He goes after them, catches them, uh, kills them, except for the 400 that escape on camels. But what the Amalekites burn the city. So David goes back to Ziklag after he recovers the people and all of the, their property, and now they have to rebuild the city. And he's busy doing this. His mind is distracted. He's not thinking about where's the battle, when's it going. He's got to rebuild. He doesn't think he's going to now enter to become king. He's not seeing that Saul and Jonathan are going to die. He's being the leader where he is. 
He knew this large-scale battle was going on, but he did not expect them to be killed in action. Verse 2, And on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Oh, he knew who David was, where he was. And, of course, he shows this great respect for David. Uh, David, of course, received used to that at this stage in his life. This is, again, on the third day, likely three days after the slaughter of the Amalekites. Well, that factors into the story because that's fresh in David's head because this guy's an Amalekite. And that's going to come out in a little bit, and that's a big part of the story. The Amalekite is a type of person, this Malachite, he, Amalekite. He comes to the camp, his clothes torn, dust on his head, all, everything on the outside looks like he's a participant with the Jews, and his heart is with Israel. But it's on the outside. It's not the inside. And in this, he is a type of person who observes some or maybe all of the rituals of religion, yet is a true enemy of God. And the Amalekites were a doomed people, sentenced by God himself. God says, they are to be removed from the earth. But he doesn't do it instantly. Isaiah 29, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Men are teaching doctrine, not receiving doctrine from God. And Jesus quotes this, and so what Isaiah is saying, what Jesus was saying, there are people that play at religion. There is a such thing as a Sunday religion that is void of true faith. And uh, many have played that game. The Pharisees and Sadducees who Jesus had to deal with, with their corruptions. Paul had to deal with them. Paul had to deal with them in Gentile, in the Gentile world as well as the Christian uh, Hebrew world. Anyway, he's got all the outside signs that he's grieving. He's, you know, this is a serious thing. And it, I believe very much uh, part of his act. In verse 3, and David said to him, where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Now this statement is going to raise a flag, may, not at the moment perhaps, but later David, was, David sort of walks away from this at, at, at the end of this man's speech. He grieves, and then he comes back. And he says, let me ask you some other questions. And, and he, he, then he, he has the guy executed. Uh, because just the, David had mixed feelings about what he was listening to. And rightfully so, because the, the man is, is withholding information and for personal gain, no less. He did not have to come here, but he wants a reward. He's in for the money, and that will come out in a moment. As the story uh, unfolds, the facts, uh, he is not a soldier. Verse 6 will say this, which makes you say, so what's he doing on Mount Gilboa, where the battle is? Why is he up there? Because mountains, you don't just stroll up a mountain. <laughs> I mean, if you've ever had to go up a mountain, it, it is, I don't mean, that's not Everest, but there are smaller mountains with a not so big of an incline, and they're difficult. It's, you know, they're in the way. Mountains, they keep people's, you know, ancient folks, they kept them away from each other. Uh, otherwise, they'd be too, even more war. Anyway, verse four, verse 4, then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. Well, David now has a witness here, and he answered, 
Now, he, David knows bad news is coming because the guy's got the clothes torn and, and, you know, he's a little ready for this. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. This is the first time David's hearing this. We read about it in the last chapter, but David didn't hear, read about it. Um, by the time David, the news reaches him, it's days old. But he's saying there were bodies everywhere. There was a slaughter that took place. David will not learn the details uh, about the bodies of Saul and Jonathan until he makes it to Hebron. He just gets part of the story here. And you'll get that in chapter 2, verse 5. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Samuel, his son, are dead? You got David, is, he's just not oh, you know, emotional and just breaks down. He's like, I, I, he's investigating this. How, how do you know? I, I need to be sure. Hearsay or eyewitness. Verse 6, a young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear. And indeed, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Well, again, as I happened by chance. These were big armies. Why did it take days before the battle took place? Because the armies were amassing, getting troops were coming in, supplies were coming in. Everybody knew there was a big war going on. You know, just, you know, I just happened. I was just up there. Uh, no, he was up there because he knew there would be dead bodies and he could loot them. Uh, the, the, you know, he could strip the body of whatever, as he does with Saul. So his story was intended to win David's approval. And uh, this is the first strike, real strike against him, that he's not a combatant. He's an Amalekite. David doesn't know that yet. We know that. And uh, by chance, I'm up there. I'm not, a, I'm not part of the fight. So David's listening. He says, leaning on his spear. Well, this account differs than the account given at the end of chapter 31 in 1 Samuel or actually the beginning of that, in that chapter, it, it differs because in that case, you have an eyewitness, uh, likely one of Saul's men, uh, no question, one of the troops uh, who, who survived, got away, were able to tell what happened. Uh, this guy's going to have a little bit different story, and it's starting here because we remember that Saul impaled himself on his own sword. Where does the spear come in? Um... Well, what happened is this guy finished off Saul with Saul's spear. That's what, where the story's going to go, just not yet. And again, he's thinking, delivering this news, he's going to win favor with David. Where else does he have to go? He doesn't want to be with the Amalekites. He is an Amalekite, but he's an alien in Israel, which means he said it's better to live amongst the Jews than the Amalekites. That brings him under Jewish law. Well... Um, I'll itemize this in verse 10. I'll go back and summarize uh, how I see this whole thing unfolding. And so here he is thinking that the David's going to be pleased that he finally, uh, this Amalekite, has rid David of his enemy Saul. Now, he witnessed the battle, but from a distance, distance enough, uh, evidently, Saul and his men were trying to get to higher ground. 
the, val- uh, the Gilboa is not just one mountain. It's a range, a little. They're not very big, but they're still, you know, sizable. And that means there's a valley there. And that's where the fight was really taking place. That's why there's the mention of, uh, and indeed, here in verse 6, at the bottom of verse 6, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Well, you're not going to use those up on the mountain. Uh, They're in the valley. Saul and his men are retreating up the hill to get the higher ground advantage where the horses won't be as effective and the chariots would be unusable. And and this is why the archers shot into Saul. They couldn't get the, the, the troops close enough because there were other men fighting and, and sort of putting a perimeter around uh, Saul as this thing was unfolding. Um, that's why he was not overtaken by the chariots and horsemen. That's why the archers killed him. And the, what the Philistines will end up at the end is late, and they'll, they'll say, okay, we got him. Um, we'll come back and get the body the next day. And that's pointed out to us in the last chapter. They came the next day, and they took the body of Saul, and they beheaded it and hung it up. Uh, but this is how it's, it's, it's unfolding. Well, during that time, as the Philistines say, okay, we got them, and they re- re- withdraw, that's when the Amalekite knows they're going to do this, knows they're not going to be out there in the dark. There's no flashlights and stuff. Then he's going to go out and, and do what he does. It's probably dawn, uh, dusk at, at this time or late in the day. Plus, everybody's kind of hungry, all that. You're certainly thirsty, all that fighting. Verse 7 now, when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, here am I. So he goes up on the mountain. He sees that Saul has retreated there. He's on, he says he's on his spear, and Saul calls out to him. Well, the armor bearer of Saul was asked, Saul said, can you kill me? I'm shot with arrows. I, I really can't get, kill myself. If they catch me half dead... They're going to torture me. Can you kill me? And the armor bearer, I'm not going to do that. I just can't. So Saul impales himself on his sword. You know, just positions it on a rock, for example, and just pushes himself on it. Likely passes out. The armor bearer thinks he's dead. The armor bearer kills himself the same way. Saul's not dead. He's, he regains consciousness when this guy comes. This is how I see it, because there are just things, you know, how did that spear get into the picture? We've got to answer that question because it should have stopped at the sword. He certainly was there at the dead body. No, no question about that. He may even think somebody else is going to tell the story and he's going to trying to cover his bases. Saul likely gains consciousness, looks up and sees him and remake. Hey, can you finish me off yet? against another guy. Finish me off. Verse eight. And he said to me, who are you? So I answered. Him, I am an Amalekite. Now David knows he's an Amalekite. Whether that dialogue took place or not, you know, it doesn't have to be. Uh, anyway, this is the second strike against the man. He shouldn't have been up there unless he's stripping the dead of Israel. And now he's an Amalekite, the inveterate enemies of Israel, doomed by decree of God in, in Exodus 17 and again in, in, in Deuteronomy 25. And David, of course, fresh off the slaughter of Amalekite raiders who, you know, they came in and just took everything. So he's not, a, not the right team to mention. Uh, this is uh, also, by the Holy Spirit, a reminder that Saul was disobedient in wiping out the Mal- Amalekites, but David 
is very much aggressive in wiping them out. Uh, they were a nomadic people. They were the descendants of a grandson of Esau. And they were cowardly. In When the Jews were in the wilderness, the Amalekites attacked the rear of the people of Israel, where the weak were, the not so strong, and, uh, and, and God. They went to war. That's when Moses' arms were held up by Aaron and a man named Hur. And uh, that was against these Amalekites. Joshua did defeat them in Exodus 17. And God said, I'm not done with them. They, they're going to go. It's not until the days of Hezekiah that they are really marginalized to a point where they're no longer a threat as a group of people. Of course, um, before Hezekiah comes, Hezekiah comes 700 years before Christ. These, uh, we're at 1,000 years before Christ. So you have 300 years before we get to Hezekiah really putting them down. Saul was dispatched to kill them. Of course, he spares King Agag. That means others got away too because Saul, as usual, was distracted from doing what he was told to do, what he was supposed to do, and created a mess for everybody else so that by the time you get to Esther and Mordecai, there is Haman, an Agite, a descendant of Agag, the guy that Saul should have killed. He's still around causing problems for the Jews. And there in Persia... Uh, they, they are dealt with and they fall off the, the map. You'll never meet an Amalekite. They, they are reduced to nothing and then assimilate whatever's left into the other peoples and there are no longer any Amalekites. That's an overview of what happens with them. We'll come back to that just for a moment in this verse. Verse 9, he said to me again, please stand over me and kill me. So he's portraying Saul as insisting, please kill me. Uh, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. Well, that's fair. I mean, you know, humans can die very quickly, and they can, you know, from trauma, or they can really last a, a long time. Anyway, this seems to be the case with, with Saul. Um, <clears throat> so I think it's less fabrication, some fabrication in his story, but mostly... Uh, withholding facts, and David's, David's going to put it together. He's, he's going to think about this and say, you know what, this guy, he's gonna, that's what he's going to have him dealt with. Uh, this, again, to have Saul's death directly associated with an Amalekite is another shame on Saul. Because, again, these are the people Saul was ordered to deal with. He does not. And that's when God really says, you know what? This guy is just, he's not listening. He's not interested in listening. And so, in God's government, oftentimes the punishment fits the crime in a very ironic way. For example, Pharaoh tried to have all the Jewish baby boys drowned and killed. Get rid of all of them. But it was Pharaoh and his army that perished in the Sea of Reeds when they chased the Jews in Exodus 14. So in Exodus 1, get rid of the Jewish boys. But by the time we get to Exodus 14, it is the Egyptian leader that is slain. Haman planned to impale Mordecai on the gallows, but it's actually Haman who is killed and impaled. And his 
Gehaman wanted to exterminate the Jews, wipe them all out. But it was the beginning of the end of the Agites, the remainder of the Amalekites. His ten sons were killed by the Jews. And so there is, again, the ironic justice of God. But again, here's Saul. He refuses to obey God to slay the Amalekites. And he himself is slain by an Amalekite. And for me, that's the part of the puzzle that has to fit. The Amalekite has to do the damage to be consistent with the picture that is sort of emerges off the pages of Saul's story. I believe he struck the death blow. You can say he's lying. He didn't. He found him there uh, and wanted credit for killing David's enemy, thinking it was going to go that way. But then you have to account, well, how did the spear get involved? Um, so the Philistines might talk, you know, hey, when we go up to the hill the next day, we found a spear in the guy. That word would get around. Well, he's covering his bases, if that's so. Verse 10, I hope I'm not losing you on this. It's really working in my head. I can see it all happening. Uh, but uh, verse 10. So I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm. And I have brought them here to my Lord. Strike three. He admits to striking the death blow on Saul. And the crowd goes, ooh, should not have said that to David. You bet, too bad you weren't there in the cave. Too bad you weren't there when this jug and spear was taken. Because David is not liking this. You had to have heard that about David. He says, because I was sure. I killed him. I stood over him. I killed him because I was sure he couldn't live. He thinks this justifies his action. And so he states his case as though he does a good thing in assassinating Saul, according to his story, an assisted suicide, you could say. He thinks this is fine. And uh, maybe he knows the story of Abimelech, the king that said, finish me off. Lest, you know, the story be told about me that I don't want people to hear. He says here, and I, I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to you. Yeah, well, where else could you sell them? But without somebody saying, yeah, I got them from that Amalekite that, you know, uh, he's thinking, I'll get more from David by doing this legitimately than if I were to take this down to the pawn shop, which really didn't exist, but he would have certainly hoped to get more from it than uh, maybe appointment. Maybe he could be now in David's camp. Um, anyway, would he have produced the bracelet and the crown had David not pressured him a little bit to tell him the story? Uh, again, throughout history, there have been battlefield scavengers. There are to this day. So let's review the three strikes. One, by chance, I happened to be up on the, mount on the mountain. Yeah, in this big battle, you just happen to be. Most people would be staying a little bit far away from what's happening, unless they be collateral damage. I mean, an arrow can hit somebody. Strike two is that he is an Amalekite. These just happened to be the people that raided David's city and burned it down. And strike three, the big one, is, of course, that he almost boasts in his admission that he slew Saul, thinking that Saul gave him permission and that would be the end of the story. So the two views, the Amalekite is lying. Saul was already dead. Then David killed a liar. Or, my view, and I think others too, that the Amalekite is telling mostly the truth. He did finish off Saul. Then David killed an assassin. 
So David's right, no matter which way this goes. But here's how I, I have it mapped out, reconciling the two accounts that seem to differ with each other, with that whole sword-spear thing. <clears throat> Saul's in the battle. He retreats up the hill to get away from the chariots and horses where he's at a disadvantage. So he gets the higher ground, but the archers pick him off. Uh, he's mortally wounded, but not yet dead, by the arrows of the Philistines. Knowing he's going to be captured, knowing he's dying, he tells his attendant to finish him off. Now, Saul has fought, fought other battles. He knows what it looks like when somebody's not going to make it. And he knows he's not going to make it. He it tells his armor bearer, his attendant, but the attendant refuses, unable to find the courage to kill his king. The Saul then impales himself on his own sword. The attendant, supposing Saul is dead, does likewise. Eyewitnesses of all this are still in the perimeter of Saul, and they flee the position, and they become the living witnesses to tell the true story that we got in the last chapter. The Philistines, well, now they're not up there for the Amalekite. They're all gone. The Philistines withdraw for the evening, returning in the morning to strip Saul of his armor and his head and take his body to uh, the Philistine temple of Dagon. But before the Philistines arrived that morning, the Amalekite got busy. He plunders, and then he pillages the dead soldiers, and he comes upon Saul. He may have witnessed some of this. Saul regains consciousness while he is there, aware of his vulnerability still to torture, and he asks the Amalekite to finish him off. The Amalekite uses Saul's own beloved spear to do it. Remember, Saul always has a spear with him. Every time we read about him going through something, he's got that spear. So that fits into the story. And what Abishai said to David, I could take his spear and kill him right here with one stroke. The Amalekite does it. So God is that, that poetic justice of God saying, you ruined your reign with the Amalekites when I gave you the order concerning them. It was a big deal, Saul. And now it has come back to bite you. And uh, the Amalekite then makes it to David's camp, pretending to be in, in grief and over the whole thing, admits to David that he killed Saul without with omitting that he plundered the dead bodies with the exception, using the, the crown and the bracelet as Proof he was there. You can bet if he didn't find David, uh, he would <laughs> eventually sold it. Uh, so David kills him for, for, for doing what he did. Uh, that's my overview of what happened there. Well, the story's not over. Verse 11, Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, so did all the men who were with him. See, again, David shines here. You know, he hasn't gotten to the point where he's going to mess up big, but... His, what is his first reaction? Grief. He's sorry over this. These are mixed feelings he has over the death of Saul. He certainly is not mixed up with the death of Jonathan. But he's delivered now. He knows this in, a, in an instant. But there's more going on to the man because he's very sensitive. You read his Psalms, he's, sometimes you say, say, David, you're a little bit oversensitive, don't you think? Until it's, until it's your turn to identify with David. <laughs> you know, then you say, man, I, I know how you felt, brother. Uh, David, uh, very likely, had always held out hope of reconciliation with Saul. Maybe God will reach his heart, give him a new heart again, 
Maybe. I think David always had that. But now it's that, that finality that extinguishes the hope completely. And it, it hits him emotionally. The day did not come when Saul would repent and Jonathan would be his friend again. And he'd see them and once again dine with them and things would go back to normal. It's not going to happen now, David. This is final. And so it says, and so, so did all the men who were with him. So it continues to, to hold David up. They see David broken, they break with him. Instead of saying, come on, David, this was Saul. We hated him. <laughs> Remember, he chased us all out of our home to promised land. That's not what happens. They see David grieve, they grieve with him. True friends. I saw some of them were misguided, but he, he made a difference in all of their lives. Speaks volumes about the man. And uh, we find that even to the day when he dies, and he's an old man, the people still love him. David, his son Adonijah, felt that Solomon shouldn't be king, but that he should be king. And David's old now. So Adonijah forms a coup. He gets Joab and one of the high priests and, and uh, some of the others to join with him. And they say, Adonijah is king. Well, the word gets to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, and, and, and to Benaniah, the head of the troop, and Nathan the prophet. And they come along and they say, hey, David, you better do something really quick because Adonijah is stealing the throne. I thought you said Solomon was going to be the one, because that's what God said through Nathan the prophet. So David, of course, with a single nod, uh, not that, you know, I, I don't want to simplify, but poetically, with just a nod, Solomon's the king. Everybody rallies behind Solomon. And we pick it up, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 49. So all, when, the, when they heard it, with those with Adonijah, so all the guests who were with Adonijah were afraid and arose, and each one went his way. David spoke. David said, no, Adonijah's not king. Solomon's king. My point is, the people just love this man, not because of his sins, but because of his serving God. They were able to overlook it enough to know that we're better off with David than anybody else's that we can think of as king. And they were attracted to his psalms as, as you know, uh, there are maybe favorite, favorite musicians and singers that you are attracted to. Well, David had that plus his military. It's sort of like, um, I don't know, for those of you who know Audie Murphy is or was, Audie Murphy was one of the most decorated soldiers of World War II, if not the most decorated. And then he goes on to become an actor and a very successful one, died in an airplane crash. But uh, it says, there you had a man like Audie Murphy. You had a hero on the battlefield, and you also had a hero in the entertainment industry. And so when he died, it was, you know, he was a very humble guy, too. Have you ever heard Audie, Audie Murphy be interviewed? It's like, man, this guy, where, where are people like this today? So uh, uh, I'm not attesting to Audie Murphy being a, 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 a believer or anything like that, but just as, as people go, uh, David had that and so much more. Verse 12, And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of Yahweh 
and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. So they, they knew this involved the Philistines. Their enemy had defeated their people even though some of their people were their enemies too. Now David at this time is going to reflect on the words of the Amalekite who's still alive incidentally. Um, 1 Samuel 23, Jonathan uh, says this to David. And I think at this time, David may have recalled this moment. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of my father, Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father, Saul, knows that. Well, the only person that, could have, that lived to tell that story was David. And this Jonathan leaked it out before he died, and somebody wrote it down, which is not likely. The point is, David... Uh, that bond with Jonathan was was just uh, an amazing bond. And so now he's, you know, it didn't have to end this way for Saul. That's what he's going through. Uh, it should not have happened like this. And he has to sort that out emotionally. And he does. Verse 13, Then David said to the young man who told him, David now bringing it up again. Where are you from? <laughs> See, stuff has been happening in his head. He's been thinking about this emotional, a long day. And he answered, I am the son of an alien and a Malachite. Now that alien means I don't belong in Israel. I am an Amalekite, but I choose to live in Israel amongst the Jews. And Leviticus 19 gives a lot of laws concerning how they are to behave and to be treated. And so having thought about it in his grief, his mixed feelings about the story, something's just bugging him about the story, mainly that part about, and I killed Saul. And as though David said, if you would, if I wouldn't kill Saul, why would you kill Saul? Who do you think you are? Kind of a, how it, it, it plays out. Uh, anyway, and he answered, I'm the son of an Amalekite. Again, cough, cough, wrong team. You should, not, you should have left that out because the Amalekites are always the enemy of the Jews, just like your flesh, my flesh, is always the enemy of the Spirit, without exception. It goes against the will and the timing and the interest of God. It is not inspiring. It is lustful for whatever it wants. And the Amalekites personify that, looking at them as a people. As a, the son of the alien, I pretty much covered that. David is saying, as, uh, as an alien, you should have honored Yahweh's anointed uh, with the rest of us. You are an assassin. And um, verse 14, so David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy Yahweh's anointed? If you are an alien, <laughs> David has already made up his mind about uh, this uneasy feeling that he had about this messenger, these mixed feelings about him, and now he is going to uh, take care of business. He probably said, the minute he heard he was an Amalekite, he says, you know what, these guys are not trustworthy. David's going to do the similar thing when Ishbosheth, Saul's remaining son, is made king and then assassinated. Well, David's going to catch the assassins who think they're coming to David. Hey, David, we killed Ishbosheth, and David's not going to be happy. We get that in chapter 4. Uh, then, anyway, verse 15. <clears throat> then David called to one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. David walks away processing, kill him. I mean, it's just, it's just a, a, an official decree. 
And he, I think he's right. For, for in those times, for the way they did business, this was right. Um, uh, and see, that, that was his reward. I want to take a commercial here and point out, hey, I don't have any allergies going on right now. I feel pretty good. Let's keep going. <laughs> anyway, um, verse 16. So David said to him, your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So that's the big part. David, of course, said this before he gives the instruction. The historian just goes back and fills this in uh, based on his own words. Well, you said you killed the anointed. That's enough for me. But there was a lot of other stuff working in David's head also. Um, verse, uh, would David have killed him if that was the only crime? Well, probably, I think he still would have. But the other ones just added. Verse 17, then David lamented. With this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. Again, these are genuinely mixed feelings that David is having. He is happy to be free from Saul, of course. But it should not have happened this way. Uh, this, this was a devastating process that should have been avoided. And you just can't shake that when it's a personal thing, when you, you, you know these people and you, you know, spent time with them, even on the battlefield, and you just, that, you know, you just can't erase it. Verse 18, and with one single stroke of the, of the brush. Verse 18, and he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. Um, the children of Benjamin, of course, that's where Saul is from. Uh, David is saying, I want to teach this to those in, in Judah so that they do not say, well, you know, the Benjamites and Saul, they were enemies of our king Judah. And he's just putting an end. It's a kind and unifying gesture by David to say, teach it to the children of Judah. He's, he's, he doesn't. He wants to neutralize any bad blood and vengeance as best he can. True leader, the song of the bow is the title. I think it should have been how the mighty have fallen. Only because he says it three times. Uh, it's a refrain in this song. I don't think it's more suitable. I, I will and I will talk to David about this when I get there because he won't have a sword or a sling and I can get away with challenging his decision on this song title. Anyway, uh, the book of Jasher. Evidently, an ongoing book where the Jews would add information to it. Uh, Jasher may have been a person. It means the upright, the book of the upright. Could have been a man. or It certainly is a journal. It was there in the days of Joshua, and it's being added to. We do not have this book. There are seven other books that we are mentioned in the Old Testament that we no longer have. The, the, the book of Gad, the book of Nathan, the book of Hosei. I mean, there's, there's quite a few of them. Uh, seven, as I mentioned. So uh, God did not decide to preserve that book. Instead, he raised up a different, a different one. Verse 19, the beauty of Israel is slain. Now, this is the song, or the poem, song, slash, uh, slain on high places, how the mighty have fallen. Well, Israel's first king was killed in action, uh, but not in action for God. It's wasted death. Is, is what is happening. The high places here, some commentators will say, well, these are the worship places that the Jews still had, the idolatrous places, some of them to Yahweh before the temple. Uh, I don't think that's what he means here. I think he means it's, it's up in the Gilboan, you know, in, in the mountain. 
But if you go the other way, that's fine. How the mighty have fallen, as I mentioned, thrice repeated in this refrain, verses 19, 25, and 27. It is kind of a, a punch-in-the-stomach line. If you, know, if you knew Saul and you knew Jonathan, they were mighty, and now they're gone. That's, that's, it's kind of like, man, it's a dirge. Um, verse 20, tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. So David says, I don't want to give any cause for the enemy of God's people and the enemy of God and truth to celebrate and gloat over this temporary victory that they have experienced. Verse 21, O mountains of Gilboa, see that's the mountain range, uh, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offering, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. Well, it's a poetic curse. And if you said, David, are you trying to curse your own people that live in there? Of course, that's not the idea. It's poetic. It is expressing his great grief that uh, took place at this uh, uh, place on earth. Uh, he would not want to, the Jews of his own people to suffer. And, and nor does the curse stand. David throws out a few curses in the scripture that God just kind of dismisses. And we're not to follow that part. So the song, of course, is expressing his great grief over all that took place there. He says, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. In other words, the shield did not shield him from death. The anointing of God was gone. And uh, uh, that's the bottom line to that. Verse 22, for the blood of the slain and the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Well, they died with their boots on, is what he is saying here. They were duking it out, and uh, they lost as uh, in an honorable way. Well, Saul knew how to fight. I mean, we, we can't dispute that. He just got messed up in the head, and it all went south. Jonathan was an accomplished archer. Uh, well, at least he, he seems to have been. Verse 23 Saul and Jonathan were beloved uh, and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Well, the eulogy, in a eulogy, you want to say good things about the person. And he's doing it. He's romanticizing his memory of them in better times. And that's what the eulogy does. Um, this was Israel's first king, this was Israel's first crown prince, and now they're gone. And he remembers them in better days. And so within the lamentation, which this is, there's this ode uh, to, to the to two men. And it is proper, even though the feelings are mixed. Verse 24, O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothes you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Personally, David, I think you're pouring it on a little thick, but uh, the economy did do well with Saul only because the enemies, they, they weren't ready to attack. But when the time came, when they were ready, that was the end of it. They were very patient, and, and the Satan is too. Verse 25, again, he repeats how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. Uh, <clears throat> appropriately, they fell on the battlefield and, and not uh, at a hot dog eating contest, uh, the, which is, he's glorifying uh, 
their bravery. Verse 26, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Now, he's not talking to the dead. He's talking of the memory of Jonathan, of course. Uh, it's just, again, it's a song that is uh, highlighting his relationship with Jonathan and even with Saul's relationship to the kingdom and David. This is an expression of the highest form of love and friendship. It is a friendship that exceeds romantic love. That's what he is saying here. When he says it exceeds the relationship with women, he's saying there's no romantic feature to this. It is pure, unadulterated, we would say, uh, companionship and like-mindedness. This is possible between a man and a woman. It is possible between a, a woman and a woman and a man and a man to have such a high relationship in, uh, in friendship. And so David, he found a depth of loyalty and brotherly love with Jonathan superior to any other kind of love amongst humans. That's what he is expressing. First Samuel 18. Now, when he had finished speaking to Saul, this is after he slew Goliath, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. This was an instant like bond. This is a friendship that was made in heaven. And David had come to value this true companionship over true romance. How many of you have had good friends in life, and now you're not? It's hard to keep somebody that is just loyal to the end. I mean, it's easier if they move away, but... If they stay close, it's, it's a challenge because Satan hates friendships and he targets them. But he's not guaranteed victory. Uh, we should keep, we should, you know, try to do everything we can to preserve a friendship. And if two of people are doing that together, you, you have a, a united front against Satan. Verse 27, how the mighty have fallen. There's a third time the weapons of war perished. Yep, they're gone. They were Israel's first royal family and their loss is significant in spite of Saul now if you take this love of Jonathan and you attempt to homosexualize it you declare that Satan is your father and that's that I say that again if you attempt to homosexualize 2nd Samuel chapter 1 verse 26, then you have Satan as your father. And I mean every word of it, and so does God. You can do something about that. You can make God your father and abandon such perverted, twisted views. Well, you get to have your say, I get to have mine. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your teachings. Thank you for reminding us that you are very mindful of what we go through. You've been through these things before with us, so we should take heart and uh, trust you no matter what. May it be so, Lord, and may you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.